Hello, everyone. Welcome back to our podcast, Stained Glass Stories. Our mission through this podcast is to tell the stories of God's chosen people from Adam all the way to Jesus. My name is Josh Green. And my name is David Dominguez. Let's get started. Welcome back. Today we will be continuing with our story of King Saul. And we are now going to be entering into the second act of his narrative. Just for reference, all of our quotations and direct references from the story and the Bible come from English translations, including the ESV, NASB, as well as the NLT translations. Now, just a brief recap. Up to this point, we have learned that Saul was anointed as Israel's first king, by Samuel, and he has reigned for several years. We also have seen that Saul has established a great militaristic presence throughout all of Israel. And alongside his son, Jonathan, he has won several significant battles. Some of these include the overpowering of the Philistines camp in Israel, which forced them to desert their garrison in Gibeah and Michmash, and the swift defeat of the Ammonites after they had besieged the city of Jabesh Gilead in the tribe of Gad. However, the last battle that we read about in our first episode of Saul's life was against the nation of Amalek. And this battle proved to be the beginning of the end for Saul. The Lord had commanded Saul to wipe the Amalekites off of the face of the earth and not to spare any man, woman, child, or any animal in accordance with the law that was written in Deuteronomy 25. However, Saul had elected to keep the spoils of the war and kept the Amalekite king, King Agag, alive. When Samuel eventually heard of this, he rebuked Saul and he told him that his kingdom will end and that it will be given to his neighbor who is better than him. Tough. Yeah, and, and Samuel didn't hold back. He then departed and went home to Ramah. And he, we are told that he just regrets ever having made Saul king over Israel. And so this recap takes us all the way to chapter 16 in 1 Samuel. And it's here that we are introduced to our new character in the story of Saul, David, son of Jesse. David, as we'll soon see, is an integral part of Saul's life. So in order for Saul's narrative to make sense, we're going to provide a little bit of backstory into our new character, David. Now, Samuel is still very burdened at this point by Saul's disobedience, but while he's in the midst of this sorrow, the Lord calls to him and states, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. And now remember from our previous episode, the act of a prophet filling their horn with oil was to prepare for the anointing of a king, just like with Saul. And so the Lord continues and he says, I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, Hmm. I feel like that's kind of a foreshadow, you know, some other important guy comes from Bethlehem and in the future in the Bible. Yeah, I'd say he's pretty important. So, for, and the Lord continues and he says, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Now, Samuel being no fool to Saul's violent character states, 
How can I anoint another king while Saul still reigns? If he finds out, he will surely kill me. So the Lord instructs Samuel to go to Bethlehem and take a heifer, which is just a young female cow, and tell the people there that you have come simply to sacrifice to the Lord. Then from there, you will invite Jesse to this sacrifice. And I, the Lord, will show you what to do as I prepare to anoint the next king over Israel. So Samuel obeys and leaves for Bethlehem. Now, when Samuel arrives in Bethlehem, the elders of the city are literally trembling as they approach Samuel and ask, do you come peaceably? Yeah, and I mean, at this point, it's pretty clear that Samuel still holds a lot of respect and reverence from the people of Israel. And, you know, rightfully so. If Samuel shows up most of the time to your city, something big is about to happen. And especially with all of the things that have gone on between Samuel and after he had rejected Saul, I think this is a pretty safe bet that, you know, they, they, they were they were trying to make sure that they were on the right end of something happening here with, with Samuel. Right. And fortunately in this case, it is a good thing. I mean, at least yeah. what Samuel says, he tells him that he's just there to offer sacrifice to the Lord, uh, which obviously isn't the only thing he plans to do there. But Samuel is of course not about to announce to all of them that he plans to anoint another king while Saul is still reigning. So Samuel tells all the elders to consecrate themselves and then afterward come with him to the sacrifice. Yeah, and, and that consecration would have involved just general washing of garments and purifying oneself, just like you said, to prepare for a coming sacrifice. But here we see Samuel begin to set up his scheme to anoint a new king in secret. Samuel actually personally invites Jesse's entire family to be consecrated by him personally, and then afterward attend the sacrifice like the rest of the elders. So none of the other elders would have received this special honor. And uh, we don't see any other elders also get a plus one to the sacrifice. So it's a little unclear, but we're obviously just going to assume that Samuel invites Jesse and his family into a private setting to consecrate them as he's obviously gone to great lengths at this point to keep this secret up to this point. So when Jesse and his sons arrive, Samuel first sees Eliab, the oldest, and thinks, surely this is our guy. I mean, he's got good looks. He's tall in stature, just like Saul. But the Lord tells Samuel, do not use these worldly metrics to elect a king as Eliab has already been rejected. Yeah, like it's right off the bat, right? Here is Samuel just making the same mistake he made the first time with with Saul and the Lord's just like correcting him. Hey, now. Yeah, and so we get this, this famous quote from the Bible where it says, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Jesse presents six more of his sons, that's a lot of sons, Mm -hmm. to Samuel, and the Lord rejected each and every one of them. Samuel tells Jesse that none of these men have been chosen and, of course, asks him if he's got any more sons. And Jesse informs him, well, there is one more, but he's out keeping the sheep right now. So Samuel tells him, go get him. And then he states, I am not sitting down until he gets here. It's a big power move. It is. (laughs) So they go and they get David, and when he arrives, When he arrives, Samuel sees that David is ruddy and handsome and has beautiful eyes, still still fixating on the physical, but the Lord tells Samuel that this is the one and to arise and to anoint him as king. So Samuel takes the horn of oil and anoints David in the midst of his brothers. And that's that's a good thing to point out because just imagine these brothers are not just getting rejected by a prophet who Mm -hmm. is the speaker of God, so to speak. Um, But the reason they're getting rejected is for their little brother. Yeah. 
So brutal. Yeah. So from this point, we read that the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward and Samuel returns to his home in Ramah. And this obviously echoes the same phrasing that we saw earlier with Saul when he was anointed in, in our first episode. Yeah. And, and that concept of the spirit of the Lord rushing upon David and leaving David is a, is a big deal in the narrative because at this point, Saul, in, in Saul's reign, like we said, the spirit of the Lord has departed from him because he has rushed upon David. And we're told that actually a harmful spirit from the Lord has taken its place and is tormenting Saul often. So in an effort to help Saul endure the harmful spirits, his servants sought to find someone who could skillfully play the lyre. And when the harmful spirit of God was upon Saul, the musician would come, play the lyre and distract him from his sorrow. And one of his servants states to, to Saul that he has seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite. I'm sure you guys can all guess who that son is. Mm-hmm. Play the lyre well. And not only that, but that he is a man of war, brave, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. Oh, and by the way, the Lord is also with him. Right. Like, that's, a, that's quite the resume. Yeah, I, I would agree. And so Saul obviously sends the messengers to Jesse and asks for David and Jesse, what's he going to do to the king's request? But sends his son with a donkey carrying bread, a skin of wine and a young goat to Saul. So Saul, we're told, takes quite the liking to David and David entered into service with Saul. And we're actually told that he makes him his armor bearer, which is a position of, of honor. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was coming upon Saul, David would take the lyre and played it for him. And over time, we're told that the harmful spirit actually departs from Saul. Yeah, so interestingly enough, many people think David played the harp, but as we read in the story, it's actually the lyre, at least based on our best translations that we have. So while they do have many similarities, they also have many distinctions. The lyre was smaller, could have been played in the lap, has like a curved neck on both sides, and it would have been played with two hands. Um, whereas the harp has more of like a straight neck, it's larger, it sits on the floor typically. So it's kind of interesting how we can conjure up like a particular image. I don't know if it's generated from a children's book or yeah. how we, how we come up with that. Um, but we just have that in our mind. And I certainly did before reading this again, that it was the harp, but at least according to our translations, it's the liar. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. Every, every book, child's book cartoon that I've seen, it's the harp. Right. So if you guys have any insights as to why many people just have this misconception or why maybe it's just easier to say harp versus lyre, I don't know. Yeah, I wonder if it's if it has to do with the fact that harp is just an instrument that is still played to this day and nobody really knows what maybe. a lyre is. Yeah, but now that the music buffs have had their fill, let's, let's move on with the story because you might have thought that at this point we had gotten rid of the Western rivals of Israel, the Philistines, but you're mistaken. Um, we've read many encounters with them so far, but the tensions between these two nations is far from over. The last time Israel had fought the Philistines, Jonathan had put a whooping on them in Michmash and had sent them running with their tail between their legs. It's still unclear in the text how much time has passed since their encounter at Michmash, but we are introduced to another battle and it is clear that the Philistines have gathered their forces and they are ready to return the favor. 
So we are introduced to another battle between the two nations, and I don't think we're exaggerating. This is probably the most well-known battle in the Bible. So set the stage for us, Josh. So the Philistines have marched all the way into Soko, which is in the southernmost tribe of Judah, and they encamped somewhere between Soko and the nearby city Azekah. So the Philistines have therefore positioned themselves at the base of a mountain at Ephes Damon, and Saul's army is positioned opposite of that mountain from the Philistine camp. And so they're both within the Valley of Elah, just kind of staring at each other. So if you're if you're intrigued by this geographical staging of the battle, a website called Land of the Battle has more information. So this description can actually make sense in your mind. Also, archaeological discoveries. So, um, and they'll probably do a much better job than I did at, at describing how the, how this is staged. So, Land of the Bible is the the webpage in case you're looking for it. Right. So now we'll get to the good stuff. So here we are introduced to Goliath. You know the one. Somewhere between six and nine feet tall, depending on your translations. Hebrew or Septuagint say something different, but. More, more likely nine feet based on the rest of this description. He's suited head to toe with bronze armor, his coat of mail weighing upwards of 120 pounds. He's got a bronze javelin slung between his shoulders. And it doesn't even stop there. It says the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, which would have been this, you know, super thick horizontal member used in a loom, uh, which would, you know, for making fabrics. And the head of that spear would have weighed almost 16 pounds. My goodness. And- Again, if you're curious about all this, there's actually an entire website dedicated to the math behind Goliath's spear, which is, right? Like, I mean, there's a website for everything nowadays, (laughs) but they, they calculated that the length would likely be around 12 feet, seven inches, which is ridiculous. If, if this is accurate, right? Because most basketball, this is, this is taller than like the top of a basketball hoop, like the top of the backboard, not the rim, the top of the backboard. Um, So just imagining him wielding a full-size basketball goal as a weapon is insane. It gives me big time Narnia vibes. I I know Josh is not a book nerd, (laughs) but I am a little bit. So I'm not going to give you guys all the details. You should go read it. I love the Chronicles of Narnia, but the, the white witch, which I'm sure most people are at least familiar with, from the, from the very famous movie, before she arrives at Narnia, she is taken from her world to London. And when she arrives in London, we're told that she picks up a lamp, a, a light post, and just starts swinging it around, a lamppost, starts swinging it around like a weapon. Eventually, the kids who bring her to London try to take her back to her world. She ends up in Narnia. That's basically how a lamppost gets from our world mm-hmm. to Narnia. Long story short, please read the books. But- it just gives me the same type of like just energy, right? Like this guy just throwing around a whole basketball goal. Like I feel like that does more for my imagination than just reading 12 foot, seven inches right. on a piece of paper that blew my mind. Yeah. So now that our, our music buffs and our, uh, our fiction, buffs, watch it. I was about to say, watch it. <laughs> our fiction buffs have gotten all that, um, intriguing, extra information out of the way. We'll go back to the story. So now Goliath has his armor bearer beside him and his sole job was to just hold his shield, which is, you know, quite the job. And considering that the only thing he could do was hold his shield obviously speaks to the size of Goliath. So Goliath puffed up with confidence, shouts out to the men of Saul, why do you come and line up for battle? 
I am the Philistine champion, but you are only servants of Saul. Choose one man to come down here and fight me. If he kills me, then we will be your slaves. But if I kill him, then you will be our slaves. I defy the armies of Israel today. Send me a man who will fight me. Now, naturally, upon seeing Goliath and hearing his threats, Saul and the Israelites were terrified and deeply shaken. And Goliath actually continues with this same act for 40 days straight. Yeah, that's a, that's a long time. And you might be wondering, so what's going on with Saul and David throughout this time? As we had already established, David was already in the service of Saul as his armor bearer. And during this battle, David had been going back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep in Bethlehem. Now, Jesse was too old to fight, but his three oldest uh, sons, Eliab, Abinadab, and Shema, had joined Saul's rank. So they were, they were fighting in the war. And so Jesse asked David to go and take a basket of basically provisions to the camp and also to cut uh, take 10 cuts of cheese to their captain in order to refresh the brothers and to find out how they were faring in the battle so that hopefully he could, you know, get information back and see how they were doing and hopefully find out that they were doing fine. So David arises the next morning. He leaves his sheep with another shepherd and takes the provisions to the Valley of Elah which is just Southwest of Bethlehem. And when David arrives, Saul's army was, we're told that Saul's army was going out to the battle line, shouting their war cry, and that the Philistines and the Israelites had drawn up for battle. So he gets there right as things are getting Mm -hmm. started. And upon seeing this, David leaves the provisions that he brought with the keeper of the baggage. Which sounds like a a pretty good job. If you're in the middle of battle, (laughs) battle, you're just the one holding the bags. Yeah, hopefully he has some weapons in case the battle gets to him. But so David leaves him with him. He runs to the ranks to meet his brothers. And when he was talking to them, Goliath once again comes out and gives his his normal speech that he's been giving for 40, for 40 days. And he speaks the same insulting words that he had before. And when the men of Israel saw Goliath, guess what happens? They once again are filled with fear and fled from him. You would have thought at this point that, they knew that Goliath was just going to be there waiting for them, but they still charged up in confidence even still and then ran away. Yeah, like maybe he went home. I don't know. <laughs> so the men of Israel, they started to exclaim, have you seen this massive giant? No, obviously I missed them. Um, he comes out every day to defy the Israelites. So King Saul has offered up a huge reward as an incentive to go up against and kill this giant. The king has promised one of his daughters in marriage and the man and his entire family will be exempt from taxes. That's a deal. That's nothing to be laughed at. No, that is a very good deal. So David hears all this and again asks what the reward for killing this Philistine is and questions, who is this pagan giant anyways that he should come and defy the armies of the living God? The men answered the same way as they had stated before and confirmed you get one of Saul's daughters and tax exemption for killing him. Now, when Eliab, Jesse's oldest son and David's older brother, heard David speaking and inquiring with these men, he scolds David and he angrily asks him, what are you doing here anyways? Shouldn't you be watching the sheep? I know about your prideful and deceitful ways. You're just here to watch the battle. Whoa, getting major (laughs) jealousy vibes from Eliab here. Of course, and so David responds, Oh, what have I done now? I was just asking a question. And 
yeah, I just love how this interaction just sounds so familiar if you have a brother, right? Or just you've been around brothers and just how they're bickering, kind of going back and forth. Yeah. Yeah, so keep in mind, obviously, that Eliab was present for David's anointing as king. So he's already dealing uh, with the frustration and insecurity being compared to his youngest brother. Yeah. So David leaves his brother and once again asks other men about the reward for killing the Philistines. So David's interest, which is obvious at this point, was reported to Saul. And so Saul sent for him. And when David approaches Saul, he states, don't worry about this Philistine. I'll fight him. Saul obviously sees the difference in age and certainly stature between David and Goliath. And so exclaims, don't be ridiculous. You have no chance against this Philistine. You are but a boy. And this giant has been a man of war since his youth. But David persisted saying, I have been taking care of my father's sheep and goats. And when a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. I have done this to both lions and bears, and I'll do it again to this pagan Philistine too, for he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. Now that is an inspiring speech. I mean, I'd run through a brick wall for that yeah. dude. And Saul agrees. He's, so Saul says, okay, you know, go for it. May the Lord be with you. Yeah, and he tries to give David his armor, but David rejects it by saying that he hasn't tested them so that he'd rather go without them. And we do have to remember that Saul is a pretty big guy himself. So his armor was likely sagging on David and probably felt like hand-me-downs to him. So David trusts, David's trust is clearly on the Lord and not on man-made contraptions or his armor or what he's going to have with him in the battle. So we're told that David goes to the nearby stream picks up five smooth stones, puts them in his shepherd bag, and then only equipped with the sling and his shepherd staff, he starts across the Valley of Elah. And his solo mission is against the biggest, baddest dude in all of Philistia. So when Goliath sees David, he sneers at him and yells out, am I a dog that you would come at me with a stick? That's actually kind of clever yeah. in fairness to Goliath. Yeah. And he doesn't end there. He, he then proceeds to curse David by the name of his own gods. And he then declares, come over here and I will give your flesh over to the birds and the wild animals. Oof. Yeah. David responds though. And he tells him, you come at me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. Today, the Lord will conquer you and I will kill you and cut off your head. And then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and the wild animals. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. Everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people, but not with sword or spear. This is the Lord's battle and he will give you to us. Mm, we got to get this man on the pulpit. That's what I'm saying. So Goliath then starts to move toward David. And of course, David runs toward Goliath to meet him. And David reaches into his shepherd's bag. He pulls out one of the stones and hurls it with his sling to the Philistine's forehead. The stone hits him, bang! and sinks into his forehead, causing Goliath to stumble to the ground and fall face first into the dirt. 
David then runs over to Goliath and takes Goliath's sword from his sheath and uses it to cut off Goliath's own head. That's a bad man right there. That is a bad man. So when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they all retreated and the Israelites chased them all the way back into Gath and Ekron, which are two of the major cities within Philistia. And all along the road of retreat, the Philistines' bodies lay in defeat. Now, when Saul had seen David go out to attack the Philistine, he asked Abner, his chief commander of his army, whose son is this young man? To which Abner responds, Oh, I haven't the slightest clue. So Day, so Saul tells him, well, you need to go find out. Right. And this is, this is kind of an interesting point in the story because what's curious is that at this point, David has been in service to Saul as a musician in his courts and has helped him get rid of the evil spirit within Saul. And so there's a couple of explanations, including, you know, there could have just been a chronological issue in the story, but it is also possible that he had just never committed to memory David's name or David's family's name right? because he was just a musician for Saul. So he needed to be reminded of who he was and who his family was in order to give David the reward that had been promised. Right. And after all that precious tax exemption was now available to David and his whole family. So yeah, got to figure out who David's father is. So after David had returned from killing Goliath, Abner grabs him and takes him to Saul. And so as, as David approaches Saul, mind you, he's, actually still holding the head of Goliath in his, in his hand. And he explains to Saul that his father's name is Jesse and they live in Bethlehem. And as David is still speaking with Saul, we're told that Jonathan is there and he's listening to this conversation. And it is at this point that Jonathan's soul is knit to David's and that he loved him as his own soul. So much so that Jonathan took off his robe his armor, and even his sword and bow and his belt and gave it all to David as a sign of his commitment to him. So David then went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. So Saul made him a commander of his armies. And we see that the people of Israel really loved and approved of his leadership. We kind of get a glimpse of that in all of like the remarks that we have read in the speeches, how Mm -hmm. he would be an easy guy to rally behind and then obviously taking out a giant also adds to that. Um, And as they're returning home, they arrive and they hear the women of the city dancing and singing. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Which, of course, really upset Saul. I mean, obviously, you know, more men were ascribed to David than himself. And we're told at that moment and from then on, Saul actually eyed David. Yeah, the... The, the very next day, we're told that a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul again. And so David had to come in and play music for him as he normally did. But now we're told that Saul begins to prophesy and begins, he, we're told that he's raving within his house and he just happened to have a spear with him. Mm. And guess what he decides to do? He hurls it at David because he thought that he could pin David to the wall. And we're told this happens twice within the narrative of the story. So either Saul had two spears near him or this just occurred two times within the same music session, which at that point, I don't know how David stayed after someone threw a spear at him the first time, but it occurs two times within the narrative. 
And also note at this point that it's likely that this prophesying and raving that Saul was doing uh, was just done to distract Saul from the fact that he was trying to grab a spear and hurl it at him. Yeah, no doubt. And so so regardless, Saul's fear of David, we, we see stems from the Lord being with David and the Lord no longer being with him. So this all leads to Saul just acting very bizarrely and and he removes David from his presence, but then also decides to make him a commander of a thousand. And we're told that in this role, David was also very successful and that Saul was in fearful awe of him because the people loved him. Yeah, so interestingly, David's name literally translated means beloved. I know. Yes, (laughs) shout out to David. And my middle name is David. So- it's, it's obviously important to note that it's likely the strategy of Saul here to put David in the front line of the Philistines. So basically he could potentially die in battle, right. which uh, as we know in David's story, David knows that same tactic. Uh, David was actually successful, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, but this takes us all the way to the end of episode two. So far, we've been introduced to our new character in the story, David. And David is an absolute beast of a fighter and swiftly won both the battle against Goliath and the Philistines, as well as won the hearts of the Israelites' people. So we also see Saul's mental state continue to deteriorate as his jealousy of David's attention grows. And as we'll see in the next episode, it really only gets worse and worse still. So we thank you for joining us on our journey through scripture. And uh, also keep an eye out for episode three as we wrap up our story on King Saul. Yeah, as always, music is by Charles Spears. And mixing and editing of this episode was by Victor Piaz LeMay. If you have any questions or suggestions, feel free to email us at stainedglassstoriespodcast at gmail.com. 